Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. So, um, okay, we're going to continue in our Revelation series. I'm really excited uh, to be able to preach uh, a really short few verses from the text, but really powerful uh, verses. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. So if you want to go and flip there, uh, that's where we're going to be reading from today. Um, I don't know if any of you know much about the state of Oklahoma, but if you Google Oklahoma, what pops up immediately are pictures of terrifying tornadoes. And so uh, if you do that, I don't know if y'all know this, but I lived in Oklahoma for three years, me and, me and my wife did. And, um, and I remember when we were planning to move there, the first thing she did was type in Oklahoma because we didn't know anything about Oklahoma. And the first thing that popped up on Google were tornadoes. And she's like, this is where you're moving me, really? Um, and so if you if you think about these moments where sirens go off and and where cl- ominous clouds are coming there's always this fear that that grips our hearts and souls and i remember one specific time we had students at camp uh, and you could just look outside and you could see, it was like the movie Twister. You're like looking at the clouds and you're going, wow, this looks ugly, it's gonna be bad. And uh, it was hailing, there was rain, lightning, the winds were really intense, the, the clouds were moving in really weird uh, ways that I'd never seen before. And so we're watching the radar, but most of us were kind of holding our breath because what we didn't want camp to turn into was us grabbing all the students and rushing them to their storm shelter that they had. Uh, that just would not have been a positive camp experience, right? And so I, I didn't want us to be huddled in this concrete room and fearful that, that a tornado might come through or whatever. And so we were all kind of holding our breath. We were all nervous. We were all kind of, you know, anxious, anxiously awaiting. Now, we were waiting on a phone call. And we were waiting on a phone call because the individual that was going to be calling us was one of our pastors at the church at the time. And he was a former meteorologist. Uh, he was a storm chaser. So he, that's what he is now. He does that full time now. He's a storm chaser meteor- meteorologist. And, um, and so he's actually invited me before to go storm chasing with him, but my wife wouldn't let me. Um, so, uh, but uh, we, we, I was waiting for him to call me because he's the expert, right? He knows what's happening. And so as soon as I saw his name come across my phone, there was this sense of uh, anxiety of what he was going to say. But as soon as I answered the phone and he started to speak, my countenance changed. I was less anxious. I was less nervous. He started to say, hey, it's, it's really good news. The, the worst parts of the storm are passing you guys uh, through the south. I've called a few of my friends um, at, at the station, and th- this is what they shared with me. And he just told us, you know, y'all, y'all are in the clear. Obviously, don't go outside because it's still dangerous, that sort of thing. But you don't have to huddle. There's not going to be a siren, blah, blah, blah. So he shared all of this with us, and, and everybody just sighed a, a, a sigh of relief. Well, in much the same way, 
This church that we're going to be looking at today, that this letter was written to, the church at Smyrna, they received a letter from an expert, as it were, and they breathed a sigh of relief. They felt this sense that the, the person who knows all things is speaking to us and knows what we're dealing with. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, the book of Revelation, uh, the word revelation actually comes from the word apocalypse. And the word apocalypse means to reveal. And so this is, this book, the book of Revelation, it's a very mysterious book. And if you go further into the book, it gets even more mysterious as you read it. And it's a little bit difficult to understand at times. But it was actually a revelation that came to John, and Jesus was speaking to John, giving him a vision for the future. It's revealing the end times, revealing what is to come in eternity and all the things that would unfold. And so John receives this vision, and this is John the disciple, not John the Baptist, and he writes, he pins this vision on paper, and then they send it to these seven churches. So this book was actually written to these specific seven churches. Now, there's going to be a picture up on the screen. This, these are the seven churches. This just kind of gives you a visual of where it's located, and some of these, these places are still cities to this day with different names. Smyrna definitely is, and it has a new name now. Um, and so Smyrna was the persecuted church is what it's known as. And so we're going to see what that looks like in just a minute. But this letter was written to Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, to... Um, encourage them because they were facing great suffering through persecution. And so let's dive into this. Point number one, no matter the trials you face, Jesus knows you and he knows your suffering. No matter the trials you face, Jesus knows you and he knows your suffering. Verse eight, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So here he begins, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes. Now, there are much debate over what this is referring to, if this is actually talking about an angel from heaven or if this is something more symbolic to the essence of the church. Most scholars agree that the most likely answer is that they're using the term angel, but the Greek word for angel actually means messenger, and so this is actually probably just a messenger to the church. In fact, it's kind of important to understand that it could most likely be a real person because this church, specifically Smyrna, was under great persecution and they would need someone who was familiar to the culture where the church was, someone who was seen around this church so that that person could kind of sneak in and it wouldn't be unusual. There wouldn't be a stranger just like all of a sudden showing up with a letter to the church. It would be kind of like a secret that this guy would be showing up with a letter. So there's, this shows how, one, how, how persecuted the church is, but also the strategy to keep the church hidden from those that would persecute the church. Now, what Jesus does here, though, is establishes his credentials before he speaks. He basically lays out for them the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What Jesus does here, and this is really important, is that Jesus is establishing first his deity. So the only other being that has been described as the first and the last is God. 
The scriptures say that he is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. So what Jesus is saying is I am God. I know all things. I see all things. I understand all things. But then Jesus goes on to establish his humanity. The fact that he is fully man. He says, I am the one who died. And why, why does he point to that? He points to that to say, not only do I sit on a throne and know all things and see all things and am involved in all things, but I actually experienced physical suffering and death. So not only does he have full knowledge of something, but he also has a full experience of something. So when Jesus says, I know the trials and tribulations that you face, he is saying, I know them because I lived them. Not only did I know them as king of the universe, but I condescended to earth and I died as a man died. In fact, if he's talking about someone who has faced tribulation, poverty, and slander, Jesus has, has experienced those in greater amounts than any one of us can imagine. So if anyone understands suffering, it is Christ who was slandered, who was stripped of his clothes, who was put on the cross and was nailed to the cross. And not only did he feel physical suffering, but he also, behind the spiritual scenes that we did not get to see, he suffered under the wrath of God for our sins. So he experienced trillions of punishments for our sin behind the scenes. Not only did he experience death on the cross, but he experienced the wrath of God. So is there anyone who can understand our pain and suffering more than Jesus? Jesus knows suffering. He knows what you face. Now let's see the suffering that the church at Smyrna is facing, because this will accentuate the amount of relief that they're feeling hearing from Jesus. The church in Smyrna, Smyrna is a unique place. It was not really overly prosperous in any way. It was a basic city of the Roman Empire, but what it was known as was the most loyal, loyal to a fault to the Roman Empire. In fact, they were, so, they were considered to be so loyal, they got the, the privilege, as it were, of creating and building the temple for Tiberius Caesar. They were the first ones. They were considered a crown jewel in the Roman Empire, not because of their prosperity and all of that, but because of how loyal they were. They flew more flags of Tiberius Caesar than any other city in all of the Roman Empire. They were considered to be the most loyal. But there were two groups of people within Smyrna that were really loyal to Caesar. There was the Jewish uh, population that was there, which there was actually quite a few of them, according to statistics. There was a huge number of Jewish people who still worshiped in a temple, in a synagogue, but, the, and they claimed to be God's people. Okay, so, so this is why the scripture says they were not Jews, they were the, from the synagogue of Satan. So in other words, they were claiming to be God's chosen people, but really they were working for Satan. And so that's a really harsh indictment of the Jewish contingent in this city. But then there was another group of people who were the Gentiles of that city who were devoted Romans and they worshiped all these pagan gods. They had temples all over the city to all the different gods. And so they would go into these temples and they would worship these gods, but they also engaged in immoral lifestyles immoral sexual lifestyles and things of that nature. And, and so they, they didn't want to hear from this one true king who says sexual immorality is a sin. 
They don't want their life to change. They don't want a king that has died and is no longer dwelling on the earth. They, they want to worship Caesar. And so they hated the church as much as this Jewish group hated the church. And so together, it made a recipe of some of the worst persecution the church has ever seen. And so the church was not just facing hatred. Yes, they were. They were receiving slander. There was false messages spread about the church and what they're all about. They were also in poverty. And what that could mean is, is it probably means monetary or money. Poverty is most likely what it means, meaning that many of them could not find work because they were Christians. They couldn't sell their products because they were Christians. They couldn't get the best fertilizer because they were Christians. So very much so, this could just mean they were poor. They couldn't make money in this city because nobody wanted to deal with them. But not only that, their suffering was even greater than that. Their suffering was friends and family members being murdered on a regular basis. So I want you to imagine the depth of suffering that they're facing right now. Imagine you wake up on a Sunday morning like many of you did this morning and you got in your car, you got ready and you got in your car and you drove to church, you parked in the parking lot and you're like, my goodness, this parking lot is so far away. And you complained as you hobbled over across 8th Street. And, uh, and, and imagine though this is, you're in Smyrna and you wake up and you put on your robe and you put on your sandals and you walk to the person's house that you are going to have church in and you kind of quietly walk down to the basement and you stagger your arrival because you don't wanna look like there's a big crowd going into this basement because you don't wanna bring any attention to yourself. You keep the candles down low. And so you go down to this basement and you see all the seats in rows or maybe in a big circle and you sit in your typical seat. And as, you, the, as, as the, everyone's kind of milling about talking to each other, you notice as church is beginning to start, there are empty seats where Jim and Steve and Cindy and Beth used to sit. And you hang your head and you maybe a few tears well up in your eyes and you remember that many of them are sitting in a prison cell or they were burned alive at a stake. So you can imagine the depth of what they're feeling in this moment. And then a knock comes lightly on the door and someone is let in upstairs and they come rushing downstairs and they unfold a scroll and say, I have a letter I have a letter and look who it's from, the first and the last, the one who died and rose again. And you can imagine hearing from your king, your savior. He is speaking to you now. And the words that he, say, he says in this moment, he says, I know your suffering. Imagine the countenance that would change, that you suffered so much and sometimes you question why, why are we suffering so great? What's the purpose of all of this? And then Jesus says, I know what you're suffering. Now, some of you in this room, I wanna just stop here and encourage you. These words, yes, were written to the church at Smyrna. And the church at Smyrna had no clue that this letter they were, re they were reading was going to impact billions of Christians throughout history. They had no clue that the words Jesus was speaking to them would be ultimately the inerrant authoritative word of God that we would read today. And these words to the church at Smyrna were no different than the words to us today. Jesus Christian is speaking to you and what his words say is, I know the death you've experienced in your life. I know the sickness I know the broken relationships. I know of your wayward son or daughter. I know of the addiction. 
I know of the pain and the hurt and the things you face. I know what you're going through and I'm here with you. I am for you. I love you. You are my child. The Lord is speaking a word of encouragement to us. Even if our suffering doesn't look like persecution, Jesus is saying, I know what you face and I'm here and I love you. And so let us be encouraged in that. Now, let us also embrace the reality of this text because we don't wanna get outside of the text of God's word. We don't wanna miss the main point of this text because what he is speaking to though, even though, yes, we need to be encouraged when we suffer, Christ knows us, he knows our suffering, he's experienced suffering and he's with us and he has a plan for all of our suffering. But what we need to be reminded today is that the church at Smyrna was not just suffering from disease. They were being murdered because they were standing up for their faith. And I guarantee you, many of them were gripped by fear thinking, when is my day coming? And yet they remained faithful. And so Jesus speaks a word to them. He says, do not fear in verse 10. And so point number two, it is possible to not fear temporary suffering. It is possible to not fear temporary suffering. So verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So this is an encouragement, an exhortation from Christ. I know you're fearing right now, but don't fear. When Jesus says something like this, this might be the most obvious thing in the world, but when Jesus commands us in this way, he is saying it is possible for you to not fear great suffering. Like Jesus is saying, I, I am gonna make you capable of not living in fear of temporary suffering. And what he's saying is, is when Christians live out their faith and they present the gospel with the, to the lost and they live for Christ, there is inevitable persecution and suffering that, come, that comes. Even in America, there is suffering and persecution that comes with living out an unashamed, faithful life for Christ. Now, it doesn't look the same as Smyrna, but I think many of us in here today, we have fear. We have fear of what would come if we truly lived the way Christ was asking us to live in our workplace and in our neighborhoods and in our families. And so he's encouraging us, do not fear. Do not fear because there is a greater purpose. Now I wanna, I wanna point to this real quick. There's a couple of obvious reasons we shouldn't fear and we're gonna address those in point three. But the one that's a little bit under the blanket, as it were, in this text is when Jesus says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Why does Jesus point to the devil now? Why does he call it the synagogue of Satan? Why all of a sudden the camera lens is, is pointed towards the devil? It's not just the Jews that hate the church. It's not just the pagan Gentiles who hate the church. It's Satan, it's the devil. Because here's the reality of scriptures. If you follow Christ and you live putting to death sin, pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ, and you are actively sharing the gospel with the lost, there is a target on your back. Because if you're living for Christ, Satan doesn't want that. The devil does not want the lost to be plucked from the clutches of hell and brought to new life in Christ. 
The devil hates what the church is about. And when we live with a purpose of the lost being saved, we then become on the front lines of the battle against Satan. See, the goal of Satan, the goal of the devil is to quench the church. Now, the way he's trying to do it in Smyrna is he's murdering Christians publicly, arresting Christians, persecuting Christians. I would say that for us today, we need to figure out where are we being attacked by Satan? Because I think for a lot of us, we're being attacked by Satan in a different way. It's secret sin. It's sin that we hide from the people around us. Or, or maybe it's just a lack of activity in sharing the gospel. Maybe we're stale, stagnant Christians who never talk about Jesus with our lost friends and neighbors. Maybe some of us have not pursued Christ in a really long time in an intimate, personal relationship. See, when a, when a Christian lives like that, the target on their back gets smaller and smaller and smaller because you are right where Satan wants you. He wants you inactive. Church, he wants us to not share the gospel with the lost. He actively wants to tempt us to think safety and comfort and security is better than seeing the salvation of Christians, of lost people. So in a, in a war, think about this, in a war when, when an army is, is headed towards your front door to do battle, you don't send your soldiers back to the, the soldiers who are on leave in their hometown. You put your best defenses in your fights right at the front lines. So if we're not on the front lines, then we're on leave back in our hometown. We're right where Satan wants us, not doing battle for the souls of the lost. And we have to remember that the suffering we face when we stand up for the gospel, when we faithfully share Jesus with the lost, it's temporary. It's one of the reasons we don't have to fear it. Look, he says, 10 days. You're gonna suffer for 10 days. It's just a period of time. I know it's hard. Stay faithful. Do not fear. You serve a greater purpose. The devil thinks he has you right where he wants you. But in reality, I have Satan right where I want him. And, and the truth of, the, of, of this word today is that the attacks against the church are meant to cause them to run in fear and renounce Christ. And here's the truth. If you look at any story of someone across our world that has been murdered for the gospel, it only serves to inflame the church. And Jesus uses the deaths, of, the deaths of martyrs to ultimately feed the flame and more people get saved. Why? Because it legitimizes the gospel. It legitimizes what we live for. Jesus is legitimate. Heaven and eternity is legitimate. It's true. And, and when, we, when people see someone persecuted for their faith, they go, why would you do that? Why would you choose to be hated? Why would you choose to be slandered? Why would you choose to die? Because it's worth it. We have all we need in Christ. Remember in the first verses that we read, he said, yes, you are in poverty physically, but spiritually you are rich because you're in Christ. Jesus is all we need to live for and it's the only message we need to proclaim with our lives. In my hometown of Florida, in Crestview, uh, the grass, it grows horribly there. So 
me and my dad would put in all this energy. We'd till up the ground. We'd, we'd you know, use fertilizer, topsoil, whatever the book said, we did it. And the grass would live for like two years and then it would die. And it was just very depressing because it was, you know, we put all this work into the yard. And whenever my dad comes to Kentucky, we're driving past yards and he makes so many comments. Like, Look at that grass. It grows so good there. Like, how is this possible? And you know, I'm like, man, dad, I'd like have to mow it every four days. Otherwise it turns into like weeds, you know, and uh, as high as your knee. And so he's like, he's like, he would take weeds at this point, I'll be honest. But, um, but one of the things we did is we would, we would get this little wheelbarrow thing and we'd fill it full of seeds and, and you just push it, you just push it like this. And it just, and it shoots the seed evenly and spreads it out all over the place. And that is exactly the image of a follower of Christ who walks in obedience with Jesus and lives for the gospel, is that, yes, there's gonna be those who slam doors in your face. There's gonna be those that reject you and say, I don't wanna be friends with you anymore because you believe in this Christ. But then there are gonna be those who, the Bible says, the gospel is either the aroma of death or the aroma of life. And there are gonna be those that it's gonna be the aroma of life and they're gonna trust Jesus and you are going to rejoice that a soul is saved to eternity because you stood for the gospel. So let's live for something greater and let us not fear the consequences. Now, there's another reason we don't have to fear. Point number three, stay faithful and do not fear. We have a future hope in Christ. So we do have a great purpose because the devil doesn't want to see the lost saved and he doesn't want us to die for our faith because more and more people get saved. He, he thinks killing us is going to hinder that. But point number three, stay faithful and do not fear. We have a future hope in Christ. So verse 10, I'm just gonna reiterate this one again. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's temporary. And then the last part of verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, he who has, ear, has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so verse, last part of verse 10, he basically says, in light of this intense persecution, you're not only going to suffer, so he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer, but he takes it to the next level. He says, basically, the worst thing that can happen is that you could die. So be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so Jesus then says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the reason why, this feels like a strange verse. This is called an emphasis verse or an emphasizing verse. It's, it's to call our attention to what is being said in, in an, like, so if you have an ear and you have the Holy Spirit within you, the Spirit is speaking to you, you have to listen to this. And he says it twice. He says this statement in two different ways. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will, unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Then he says, sandwiched on either side of this verse about he who has an ear, let him hear. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So these two things are very similar. These two, he's saying in two different ways. And when the Bible does that, it means pay attention. Write these words on your heart. Remember them that the worst thing that will happen to you is you could die and you must remain faithful. Even when the gun is pointed at your head, even when your last breaths are about to be taken, remember Christ. Christ has given you victory. Now, I wanna 
give a caveat. This does not mean a life that is faithful and has victory in heaven does not mean a life of perfection. It does not mean that, that if you failed to share your faith because you were scared, that you are lost and apart from Christ. That just means that you have sinned and you need to repent. So this does not mean perfection. It does not mean that you always do the right thing in every single moment. Therefore, now you get the crown of victory. The life of a follower of Christ is one who their life, the general trajectory of their life is faithfulness to Christ. Will you mess up? Yes. Will you run in fear sometimes? Yes. But there is forgiveness for those who are in Christ and are, are, if, if, that is, if this is you, if this has happened where you've chosen fear over faithfulness, you can repent. You can confess your sin to Christ and say, I have, I have stumbled into laziness and fear and, and I've chosen comfort and safety over being faithful. Then repent, go back to that person that you know Jesus was saying, share my name with them. That's repentance. But what this passage is saying is those who their life, their general trajectory of their life was faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to live for him, live for the gospel, those are the ones who will have the crown of life. Those are the ones who are conquerors. And so what Jesus is doing here is more than, more than trying to cause us to like doubt our faith because we're lazy Christians, more so Jesus is saying, what is awaiting you is victory. While Jesus wore a crown of thorns, we will get a crown of life and victory. That we will be conquerors in heaven for all eternity. In fact, I love what he says here, that, that even if the worst happens and someone tries to kill you for your faith, well, the, the second death is our physical death. It's just a gateway. It's, it's a doorway into another reality in heaven for all eternity, rejoicing for all eternity. Our suffering here is temporary. And those, those who have died for their faith, they are better off than the rest of us. And so he's saying, in light of death and suffering, it's temporary and ultimately your crown of victory is in heaven. You may not have money and success and all the things you've ever wanted in this life, but you will have victory and you will be a conqueror one day in heaven for all eternity. Go through this life living faithfully and even if you suffer setbacks, even if you lose a job because you're a Christian, even if you lose relationships or you are hated for your faith, it's worth it for those to be saved and for you to wear a crown of victory for all eternity. I was thinking about this. It was kind of a, a tough story, but um, back then it was. But we had this kid in our youth group, and his dad was always frustrated because he overemphasized his injuries, like, so when he would hit his knee or fall down, he would, he would just make, he would scream, he'd cry. You know, he was like, in, he was in middle school at the time. And, uh, and it was kind of heartbreaking because it is like the boy who cried wolf, right? So if your kid cries over everything, then everything is bad, you know? And, uh, and so it's hard to discern, like, is this serious? Is this real? Well, his kid came to him before a football game. He played football in like eighth grade. Came to his dad and he said, dad, my stomach doesn't hurt. My stomach hurts really bad. And he's like, well, you probably ate too much for lunch. And he made all these excuses. You probably drank water too fast. You've got cramps, whatever. And he's like, no, no, dad, serious, it hurts. Well, he went out on the field 
and his dad made him play. He's like, no, 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 get out there and you do what you're supposed to do. You get over it. So the kid goes out there and he takes a hard hit, bam, and just tackles him. And he lays there. Everybody hops up and starts walking off for a timeout. And he still laid sprawled out on the field. And his dad's like, uh-oh. <laughs> and, uh, and so then they all go out there and they get him. And he's like, my stomach hurts. And he's like, he's whining, screaming, complaining. And he's got all this pain. And it turns out that his appendix had ruptured. <laughs> And so, of course, the dad, he has never lived this down. You know, he feels so guilty. Like, he forced his kid to go out there, and his appendix ruptured, and they had to have, like, emergency surgery and all this stuff anyway. But, but he went through all this stuff. But one of the things that I remember the kid saying that was really interesting was just, I, I asked him about the experience, and he said, you know what was funny is, he said, it, it hurt really bad, yes. Like, the appendix hurt and all of that. But he said, but what, what actually was a little scarier was the surgery, like, if you think about surgery, it's a really weird concept that you are voluntarily allowing someone to take a knife, cut your skin open, and open your body, the insides of your body to the world, and, and, then, and then to remove an organ that is damaged out of your body. And he said, you know, the pain after the surgery was not great, and, and it was scary, and, and all this stuff is fearful, but I, but I endured it. I went through it. And, and we will all do that, right? Like we, we will all endure a surgery. We know it's necessary so that after the surgery, you know, a week or two goes by, the cut heals up. We're able to eat steak and potatoes again and enjoy a TV show with our family and go play sports and all these other things. We endure those things because we know what's next. This is written in all of our hearts. And Jesus is saying this here. He says, endure what you have to now because you know what's next. Live as a citizen of heaven and not a citizen of the earth. This is not our home. We can't take our cars and our homes and our money with us, but what we can take with us are the eternally saved souls of people that we shared the gospel with. We must live for something greater. In fact, one of the pastors of the church at Smyrna, his name was Polycarp. What a terrible name, his parents didn't like him. Polycarp, he was a pastor of the church. He actually lived, in, and he was very highly regarded. In fact, when he knew his arrest was coming, the people of this church said, get out, go, escape. He said, no, I'm not gonna do it. He knew it was coming, but he also knew that his arrest would lead to the salvation of hundreds and thousands of other people. And he did. He, they, they put him on a stake, they burned him alive, and then they stabbed him to make sure that he was dead. Because he believed in something greater than his own physical body. Folks, let us be a church that the world comes against us because we are unashamed of Jesus Christ. Where is God calling you to share your faith, to be bold, to endure the consequences of saying there's one objective truth and that truth is found in Christ and his word. So as the band comes up, this is super important that we're taking the Lord's Supper today. It reminds us of our salvation. It reminds us of eternity and our eternal hope that we have in Christ. And some of you just remember, there's some of you in this room that need to just remember the first part of this sermon where you're carrying the weight of a thousand pounds of suffering and you just need to hear the message that Jesus knows you and he sees you. So some of us need to be comforted as we take the Lord's Supper and remembering that Jesus died for you, he loves you that much and he knows your suffering. 
And some of us need to feel conviction today. Conviction that we have not been faithful in sharing the gospel with the lost. And so as we take, that, no, as we take this, let this be the, the public reminder of what we live for. We live for Christ. And when he, take, when, when he gave this meal, he gave it as a reminder, a reminder of our hope. And so when Jesus, uh, when, when Paul talks about this meal, he says it's for the believer, it's for the follower of Christ. And if you don't have elements, you can raise your hand. We'll bring them to you. I apologize, I forgot to mention that. But let us, let us be reminded today that this, this meal, this meal is for the believer, it's for the follower of Christ. And if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, don't take this meal today. Take Christ, trust in him, believe in him. And so when Jesus took the bread, he said, this is my body that was broken for you when he died on the cross. So church, let's take and eat because we have been saved through Jesus's crucifixion and his resurrection. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this was my blood that was shed for you. So church, let's take and remember Christ's blood that forgives us. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that today you would comfort those that suffer and convict those who are stagnant. God, I pray, Father, that you would show us where we've chosen comfort and safety over following your will. God, we trust you with this story that you're writing for all of creation. It's your story. And while it might be riddled with suffering and difficulty, there's a greater purpose for all of this. It's your glory and it's the salvation of your people, Lord. Amen. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, Find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.